I like the Old Testament. Thank you. Some of it's hard to read, especially if you try to read it in the King James Version. But even the King James Version, it's the Word of God. This morning, I want to share with you one of my favorite, hard-to-believe Old Testament miracle stories. We'll be dealing with the prophet Elisha. So if you will, please stand with me. We'll be reading from 2 Kings chapter 6, reading verses 1 through 7. <clears throat> this is the word of the Lord. And the son to the prophet said to Elisha, See now, the place where we dwell with you is too small for us. Please let us go to the Jordan and let every man take a beam from there and let us make there a place where we may dwell. So he answered, Go. Then one said, Please consent to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. And he cried out and said, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. So the man of God said, Where did it fall? And he showed him the place. And he cut off a stick and he threw it in there. And he made the iron float. Therefore he said, Pick it up for yourself. So he reached out his hand and he took it. Father, I pray that your word and your message will fall on ground that is fertile. Father, I pray that your word will not return void and that lives will be changed. Father, help us to not just hear your word, but to make application of it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Patty and I left on Wednesday to put up the promotion banners in Memphis, promotion for the domestic trip that's going to happen. We put up sports camps, four block parties, children's events. You probably need to know that Patty didn't go with me because she loves to pound 10-foot steel poles into the ground. She went with me because Memphis is only about an hour from where our oldest daughter lives. And also, it is the location of one of our favorite restaurants, the Old Town Spaghetti Store. I told her if we got finished in time, that we could meet Megan for a late dinner. Once I said Megan, I realized we would be finishing in time. Or else. When we sat down, the waitress took our our drink orders, three waters, and then she said, Will you be starting with a dessert? I Gave her a strange look and I said, I want an appetizer, the fried zucchini, but not dessert. Not yet. She was embarrassed. We all had a good laugh. So today, think of today's message as a meal. We're going to start with a salad. We're going to add an appetizer. We're going to move to the entree and hopefully finish with dessert. Dessert being taking God's word and deciding to join him in his work. Before we get to Elisha and our text, I want to take a little history trip with you and set some context both for the prophet Elijah and the prophet Elisha. Elijah the prophet served God between 860 BC and 852 BC. He did around 16 miracles 
Elisha did around 32 miracles, twice the number of Elijah. Elijah's Hebrew name means, my God is Jehovah. We first find Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17, and Elijah is being used by God to tell King Ahab that it is not going to rain for three and a half years. Shortly after, in verse 4, we find Elijah camping by a brook, and ravens are bringing him food. For those of you not familiar with the Old Testament, this is not an NFL player from Baltimore. It is a raven, the bird. He ate what the birds brought, and apparently he was not even worried about catching histosplasmosis. When I was a kid, anytime I tried to catch a bird or pick up a dead bird, my mom always said, you're going to catch histosplasmosis. It's a real thing. I never got it. The brook dried up and the Lord told Elijah to go to Seraphath, where there was a woman who had a little flour and a little oil. She was planning to create a last meal for her and her son, and then they would die. But Elijah told her that if she would feed him, as long as she fed him, they would not run out of meal or oil until it rained. Then one day her son got sick and he died. So they took him up to Elijah's room. They placed him on Elijah's bed. And he did what most doctors would do today. He stretched out over the child three times. And he asked God to bring him back to life. And the God brought back life into the boy. By now we're at chapter 18. It's after this of the power of the mountain miracle happened. Uh, the drought is still going on. Elijah goes to town and eventually has a run in with the king Ahab. Elijah challenges the 700 prophets of Baal um, to attest to see which God is real. God sends down fire. He burns up the sacrifice. He burns up the altar. He burns up the 12 barrels of water that were poured on it. The people chose to worship God alone. They killed the false prophets. After this, we're in chapter 18, somewhere around 41, and God sends rain. It's at this point in chapter 19, we see a very human side of Elijah. He's running for his life. He's fleeing from Jezebel. And to be honest, he's just kind of ready to die. Life is just too tough. He falls asleep and he's awakened by an angel who prepared for him hot yeast rolls and sweet tea. Well, if he were in the South, maybe. What he got was bread baked on a hot rock and some water. Two servings, enough to sustain him for 40 days. We find him next at Mount Sinai hiding in a cave and God asks him, what are you doing here? Elijah fusses and complains. He tells God um, what's going on and God says, go over and stand before me in front of the mountain. So Mount Sinai, the place where Moses got the Ten Commandments from God, Elijah moves over and God sends a mighty windstorm. Now, it would have been cool to me if when the windstorm started, God had said, Elijah, every time you open your mouth, this is what I hear. But God's not like that. It wasn't just a windstorm. It was a windstorm and rocks began to crash down the side of the mountain. But God was not in the wind. Then an earthquake hit. Plates were breaking. Windows were rattling. If there had been plates and windows and houses, that would have happened. But at the mountain, there was an earthquake. But God wasn't in the earthquake. Then 
there was a fire, but God wasn't in the fire. Then there was a still small voice, the voice of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, which probably had not been washed in some time. And he went back to the cave and God asked, what are you doing here? It's a great question for us today. What are you doing here? We've got to be honest and do some confessing while preparing for this sermon. I started to study background on Kings. And when I got to chapter 19, verses 1 through 18, I had my own Mount Sinai experience. The question that pounds at the door of my heart is, Donnie, what are you doing here? I don't think it's a geographical question. I'm here because God sent me here to work. But the question is, what are you doing here for the kingdom? Am I just earning a paycheck or am I allowing God to make a difference through me and in your lives and the lives of those around us? How much time do I spend fussing and complaining? How much time do I spend speaking for Donnie instead of speaking for God? This may not be the message that God gave me for you, but it seems to be the message that God had for me. Back to our text. You see, I'm still serving the salad. That was just a look at the appetizer. Elijah went back and he stood at the cave and God asked, what are you doing here, Elijah? It seems Elijah just had there, just had time there to fuss and complain. And when Elijah says, I'm the only one left who serves you, Elijah had spoken for God and said it was not going to rain for three and a half years. It did not rain for three and a half years. Elijah had spoken for God and said it's going to rain and it rained. But here, I don't think this is Elijah speaking for God. I think this is Elijah speaking for Elijah. He wanted to get it off his chest. He felt he had been wrong. He felt he was the only one who had been faithful. And with that same sweet, small voice, God says, Elijah, you're doing great. No, God didn't say that. He said, get up, go back the way you came and do the job that I gave you to do. While you're going back, stop by the wilderness of Damascus and anoint Haziel as king of Aram and anoint Jehu to be the king of Israel and tell Elisha to join you so that he can replace you as prophet. Then with this in place, if anybody tries to escape Haziel, Jehu will kill him. If anybody tries to escape Jehu, Elisha will kill him. And then God says, and by the way, there are 7,000 people who have not bowed a knee to a false god. Elijah does as he's told. At the end of chapter 19, we find Elisha. He has a barbecue for the neighborhood. And then he begins to follow and become Elijah's understudy. We'll skip over 1 Kings 20, pick up in chapter 21. Elijah tells Ahab in verse 22 that all of his sons would be destroyed and that Jezebel would be eaten by dogs. I kind of suspect he enjoyed delivering that news. In fact, he tells him all of your family who die in the city will be eaten by dogs and all of your family who die in the fields will be eaten by vultures. As we move into 2 Kings, we learn that Ahab has died and Isaiah has become king. Isaiah moved into the palace in Samaria And when he went upstairs, he fell through some lattice work and he was seriously injured. While this shouldn't be funny, it makes me laugh. You know the story spread. 
The new king was upstairs. He fell through the lattice. I don't know if he was a big one, but if you fall through a floor, I'm going to laugh because that's funny to me. The king, after falling through the floor, ended up in the bed and was afraid he was going to die in the bed. So he called for some servants and he said, I want you to go and find some priests of Beelzebub and ask them if I'm going to be okay. Ask them if I'm going to stay in this bed or if I will be okay. So God sent an angel to Elisha, to Elijah and said, you need to head off the messengers at the pass and you need to ask them, what are you doing here? That really wasn't the question he asked, but that's part of the appetizer. I don't want you to forget it. He asked them, is God no longer in Israel? Why would the king confront another God, a non-real God, while Jehovah is still on the throne? He told them to go back to Isaiah and let them know that he would never get out of bed. In fact, he was going to die in it. Elijah delivered the message to the messengers. The messengers delivered it to the king. The king, who was still bedridden, couldn't understand how the messengers came back so quickly. The messengers told him that a man had said, you should plan to die in the bed. The king asked, what did this man look like? They reported, he was hairy and he wore a leather belt. Immediately, he said, Elijah. I can kind of hear him saying it like Jerry used to say, Newman, with disdain. Isaiah decides to send an army captain and 50 soldiers to capture Elijah. The, cap- the captain finds Elijah sitting on a hill with his 50 soldiers and he shouts out, Hey, man of God, the king has sent us to get you. Elijah responds as with, If I am a man of God, may God send fire down and consume your entire group. Now, this is where I don't know how much time there was between Isaiah saying fire from heaven and the fire from heaven falling. But I kind of wonder, was it that guy thing of the soldiers where they're all kind of looking around and, you know, maybe the captain turns around and smirks and they get a good little laugh and then boom, fire from heaven, 51 burned soldiers and captain. Well, the king wondered why group one had not come back. So he sent group two, another captain, 54 men. Exact same thing happens. Elijah's on the hill. Hey, man of God, if I was a man of God, fire may fall. Was there a lap? Still don't know. 51 men dead, burn pile number two. King gets tired of waiting on the second group. So he sends the third group. The third captain walks up the hill between the two burn piles. And he says, Elijah, Please spare my life and the life of my men. So Elijah listens as God is speaking through an angel and says, it's okay to go with them. Elijah goes to see the king. He asks the king why he trusted false gods instead of the real God. And then he breaks the news from God, you will never leave your bed. And he didn't. He died there. Second Kings 2 has Elijah and Elisha heading into what we would call the last days of Elijah. That song, these are the days of... You got to help me here. Work with me. Well, it's not really the last days of Elijah. It's just the last days for a while. Elijah and Elisha were in Gilgal. And Elijah told Elijah, why don't you stay here while I go to Bethel? And Elisha said, I will go with you. I will never leave you. I am coming too. So they get to 
Bethel. And when they get to Bethel, some prophets came up to Elisha and said, did you know this is the day that God is going to call Elijah home? And Elisha said, I did, but don't tell anybody. Don't mention it at all. Then Elijah tells Elisha he's going to Jericho, but he should stay there. And Elisha said, I'm going to go with you. I will never leave you. And when they get to Jericho, a group of prophets came up to Elisha and said, did you know this is the day that God was going to call Elijah home? And he said, I did, but don't tell anybody. And then Elijah tells Elisha, I'm going to the Jordan River, but you should stay here and wait. And Elisha says, I'm never going to leave you. I'm coming too. When they got to the Jordan, there was a welcoming party of 50 men who were watching Elijah to see what was going to happen. They came to the Jordan. Elijah folded his cloak and touched the Jordan and separated the water and created a dry path for them to walk across. Elijah says to Elisha, what do you want me to do for you before I leave you? Elisha said, I would like a double share of your spirit, a double share of the power of God. Elijah said, well, that's difficult, but I tell you what, if you see me taken away, you'll get what you want. If not, well, sorry. As they were walking, along came a chariot of fire pulled by blazing saddles. That's two movie references in one sentence. A chariot of fire with chariot with fiery horses and a whirlwind picked up Elijah and took him to heaven. I was driving in this morning. This text has been on my mind and I'm sitting at the light thinking, what would happen? What would happen if God turned my truck into a fiery chariot with fiery horses and I'm just whisked away? Anybody seeing that would freak out. Elisha freaks out. He rips his clothes. He picks up Elijah's cloak and he touches the water of the Jordan and it opens up and he crosses on dry ground. Those 50 men that were there, they came running over and they recognized Elijah and said, Elijah's spirit rests on you. If you'll say the word, we'll go look for Elijah. And Elisha said, there's no need to work to look for him. And they said, no, why don't you, if you'll just tell us, we'll go look. And Elisha said, there's no need to look. And they said, let us go look. And he said, well, do what you want to. And they went and looked and they could not find him. And they came back to Elisha. And Elisha said, didn't I tell you not to go? Elijah had a great ministry, an extraordinary ministry. God used him to begin and end a drought. He was fed by ravens. He increased the widows at Seraphath's flour and oil. He raised back the widow's son of Zarephath from the dead. God gave him an incredible victory as fire fell from heaven, defeating the 750 prophets of Baal. He was fed by an angel twice. He heard God in a gentle whisper on Mount Sinai. He said the dogs would eat Jezebel, and they did. He called fire from heaven. He divided the Jordan River and walks across on dry land, and he's carried in a whirlwind into heaven following a chariot of fire. That is the instructor. That is the mentor of the prophet Elisha. Told you that Elisha had about twice as many miracles as Elijah. I'm just going to run through a quick overview. We pick up at the same place at the Jordan. Elisha, using Elijah's cloak, divides the Jordan, walks across on dry land. He purifies some tainted water with salt, makes it pure forever. He curses some young men's unbelief. Two she-bears come out of the woods and attack 42 of them. He fills a dry valley with water. He deceives the Moabites. Um, 
when they looked down at the water, they saw a valley of blood. There was a miracle of the vessels of oil. There was a prophecy of the Shumanite woman that she would have a son. And then the resurrection of the Shumanite woman's son. There was the healing of the gourds, the miracle of the bread, the healing of Naaman, the calling out of Jehazi's son, and then uh, cursing him with leprosy, of uh, his, his sin, not his son. And finally, we arrive at the entree, 2 Kings 6, 1 through 7. You ready? Give me two. You need to know there's nine more prophecies that are going to happen. I'll give them to you quick. The next one's really cool. They're in a basin, and the servant comes and says, Elijah, Elisha, we're in trouble. There's an army coming. We're going to die. And Elisha walks out and looks, and sure enough, there was an army. But he saw on the hill around him angels on chariots to fire, ready to swoop in and do battle. And Elisha prays that the eyes of his servants would be open. And he saw that God was taking care of him. There's an army that is blinded. The sight is restored. There's, he uses the sound of chariots to deceive the Syrian army. And after his death, he's buried. And then there is a battle. And they redig his grave. And a dead soldier is put in there. When they touch his bones, he comes back to life. I told you, it's a strange story. I like the Old Testament. It's hard to read, especially if you read it in the King James version but even the king james version it's the word of god this morning i want to share with you one of my favorite hard to believe old testament miracle stories the story we're looking at today takes place in the 8th century bc it's during the time when the kings of israel were split into two kingdoms Um, there was israel in the north there was judah in the south the prophet elijah has been taken to heaven and elijah has begun his ministry so We think Elisha trained under Elijah for around 50 years to prepare him for ministry. Elisha is now training other young prophets of God. I hope you've got the picture because here we go. Elisha is growing in notoriety. He is gaining followers. His group, kind of a seminary, is outgrowing their current facility. From what we're told in verse 1, the school of the prophets had become so large, they'd outgrown their place and they decided they needed to build something larger. They were cramped. They came to Elisha, maybe a little anxious, and asked, verse 2, please let us go to the Jordan. Let every man take a beam from there and let us make a place where we may dwell. And Elisha says, go. When he says go, he probably did go, meaning go with my blessing. Enjoy the day. Cut down trees, build a bigger building. He was sending them off. He did not seem to be planning on going with them. In my 35 years of ministry, I've had the pleasure of serving with many pastors and knowing many pastors. There haven't been a lot of them that would have volunteered to go and help build a cabin in the woods. Elisha did not offer to go. But when the students ask him, please go with us, it lifts him to a whole nother level of commitment. In my simple Donnie world, I would have loved it if they had said to him, Pastor Elisha, what are you doing here? That's part of that entree, right? Or part of that appetizer. Salad's gone. Entree is served. Still picking at that appetizer. I don't think they were expecting Elisha to help them with the strenuous part of the building. I'm pretty sure Elisha didn't have an axe. He probably left it at the bar- barbecue. They just wanted him there to walk, to talk, to inspire I think him being there would have helped there be less arguing because you put a bunch of seminary students together trying to build a cabin in the woods. There's going to be fussing. They get to the Jordan. They begin cutting down trees, each student doing his part, and a 
problem arises. While cutting down the trees, one young man has his axe head come flying off the handle. It lands in the Jordan River and sinks to the bottom. You got the picture. Wooden handle, iron axe head, flying through the air, splash, gone. There are some possible reasons for that. When I was a boy in Jacksonville, Florida, I was fascinated with Indians, with Native Americans. One day when I was about seven, my dad found an authentic Indian axe. We'll just go ahead and call it what I thought it was, a tomahawk. I thought it was kind of cheesy because it didn't look like any axe I'd ever seen on TV. It had a handle. It had two little sides of wood and some leather for binding where the axe head should have been. And when I saw the axe head, well, it was really just a rock with red paint on both ends, which I was pretty sure came from scalping a pale face. I was seven. Probably a good time to mention that that rock axe head with the red ends were rounded and not sharpened. You see, if you smacked a tree with it to build your own teepee, it would just make a thump. It didn't matter how hard you hit it, it just made a thump. It left a small indention and knocked off some of the red paint. It's amazing how some Native American boy went and scalped a pale face with it. I don't know how he did it. I continued smacking the rock until the rock came out. It, I slid it back in. Every time I swung it, it fell out. If the rock had had an edge on it, then it would have dug into the tree and not bounced off. Instead of just making a thump. I still have my Indian tomahawk. It's 50 years old. It still has blood on the ends that looks like red paint. If you look at this end, you can see where I beat the paint off trying to build a teepee. But you can also look at it and and realize that if you're just a young seminary student who really doesn't know about felling trees, that maybe you didn't sharpen the edges and maybe you didn't soak the leather so it would dry and hold it tight and you would just start pounding away with a borrowed axe head. He had the handle, he had the leather, he had the iron hacks, but did he have a file? Did he keep it sharp? Because if it's not sharp, trust me, it won't dig in. It just makes a thumping sound. The text tells us the young man lost his axe head. He lost his cutting edge. He lost his effectiveness in doing the work that he had set out to do. So today, I ask, have you lost your cutting edge? Will you let me jump ahead to dessert and suggest that your cutting edge may be your spiritual sharpness or your spiritual edge? Have you lost your effectiveness and your enthusiasm for doing the work of God that God has called you to do? And if you have, is it possible to retrieve a lost or forgotten spiritual edge? Today, I say with you, absolutely. For my outline people, three points, three things we must do in order to recover our lost spiritual edge. The first thing is we must accept responsibility for losing our spiritual edge. Verse 5 says, But as one was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. The word alas means, oh no. Isn't that what you cry out when you lose something? You get a sense of panic. Oh no, I've lost my glasses. Oh no, I've lost my wallet. Oh no, I've lost my keys. Oh no, I've lost my child. You panic. You, The young man cries out, oh no, master, I've lost my axe head. 
and it was borrowed. The fact that the young man lost something that didn't belong to him made it an even more significant event. He lost something that was not his to lose. I'm sure when he borrowed it, he promised to bring it back. You can't bring back something if it's lost, can you? Notice he didn't blame anyone else for what had happened. In essence, what the man cried out was, Oh no, master, I have lost the cutting edge I was borrowing from someone else. Here's another little taste of that dessert. When we lose our spiritual cutting edge, we must accept the personal responsibility for it. We can point the finger at the preacher and say, I lost my spiritual edge because your sermons didn't feed me. We can point a finger at the church and say, I lost my spiritual edge because you didn't provide the program that fulfilled my personal needs. We can point the finger at our job and say, well, I lost my spiritual edge because I had to work too much. The truth is, when you and I lose our spiritual edge, the blame lies within us and we must accept full responsibility. We must also understand that when something is lost, it's something that we borrowed. God has entrusted you and me with spiritual gifts to be used for his work in building his kingdom. We're not the owners of the spiritual gifts. They're just abilities that God has entrusted to our care. We must take that very seriously. If the young man had just kept swinging the blade, he might have looked the part, but he wouldn't have been doing any good. I served a church in Midfield. It was Fairfield Highlands Baptist Church, and we started a men's work night on Thursday nights. And one night, one of the older men came up and said to me, if I give you this two before, can you hit that thing there and break it off the wall? Well, he challenged my manhood. He threw me in the category of preachers who can't fix things. So I said, give me that two before. I took a mighty swing. It was a swing that would have made Casey and Mudville proud. All the energy of that swing went straight into that subject, solid object. And that two before came screaming back and hit me directly in the side of the face. I understand the foolishness of trying to cut without a cutting edge. We must accept responsibility for losing our spiritual edge. And secondly, we we must acknowledge where we lost our spiritual edge. Verse 6 says, so the man of God said, where did it fall? And he showed him the place. So he cut off a stick and threw it in there. And he made the iron float. Elisha asked the young man to show him the place where the axe head had settled. And the man pointed to the exact spot. He didn't look around and say, I don't know. It was over there. It was over here. He knew it was important. He knew where he landed. and He knew where it was. What happens next is the miracle. It only takes part of a verse. But it's still a very powerful Miracle, verse 6b, the second part says, So he, meaning Elisha, cut off a stick and threw it in there, and he made the iron float. Here's where I have a few questions. Elisha had parted the Jordan River with Elijah's cloak. Why not tap the water, walk in on dry land and pick it up, right? Didn't happen. They knew exactly where the iron axe had it fell. Why not say to the young man, okay, strip down, dive in, pick it up. We'll be here. We'll help you. Didn't happen. Was it too muddy? Was it too deep? Was it too cold? Were there crocodiles in it? No. He did it because God had a plan. I'm pretty sure there wasn't a meeting where Elijah called all the students and said, what should we do? He didn't need a meeting with them because he had met with God. 
So he cut a stick, and I don't know where he got the cutting thing from the stick, maybe another axe. Cut a stick, he tossed it in the water, and the iron axe head floated to the top of the water. Now, I just got a rock, but that rock does not float. And today, when we lift heavy things, we put airbags under them, and we'll blow them up, and they'll come to the surface. God didn't have any of that. Elijah threw in a stick, and the axe head floated to the top. It could have floated to the top of the water and out of the water and landed right by the student's feet because God is all-powerful, but it didn't. Elijah could have reached over and picked it up and said, now take better care of your stuff. Make sure you tie it down. Soak the leather. Let the leather dry. But he didn't. Elisha told the student, bend down and pick it up. In just human terms, man world, no man should ever try this on his own because you'd be laughed at. If you go to the lake and you drop your keys in the lake and you say, where did they fall? Hand me a stick and you throw the stick in after the keys and the keys don't float. You've lost credibility with your buddies, right? When he told the student something from that point on, if it doesn't float, they don't let right. Remember, he said, cut a stick and an iron would float. We can't trust him. But God used him to do a miracle. And in verse 6, we see that before you can recover something, you got to go back to the place that was lost. That's what we do when we lose something, right? I've lost my keys. Where were they? Well, I was in the kitchen getting a snack, and then I was... I laid them on the table. We go back to the place where we lost something. We try to recall it. We retrace our steps until we find it. We live in a society that allows us to use a watch to find our phone or to use an app to find our watch or to use our video doorbell to know who's at the door. But we also have the Holy Spirit that allows us to find where we lost our spiritual edge. When you lose your spiritual edge your effectiveness, and your enthusiasm. You need to acknowledge where we lost it. Did it happen when I stopped reading my Bible every day? Is that when this began to happen? Did it happen when I stopped going to church regularly? Did it happen when I got upset over something that was said to me by somebody at church? Did it happen when I got mad at the pastor for something he said in one of his sermons? Did it happen when I went back to that old sinful habit? You see, our tendency is to just keep chopping. And not to realize that our spiritual accent is missing and that never works. The second lesson in this same thing in verse 6 is once we acknowledge where we lost our spiritual edge, we must rely on God's power to help us get it back. This is where repentance comes in. We must openly and honestly confess to God that we have lost our spiritual edge. It's our fault and we can't fix it on our own. We need the power of God and his forgiveness to help us recover our spiritual edge. We must accept responsibility for losing our edge. We must acknowledge to God that we've lost it. And thirdly, we must take action to recover our spiritual edge. Verse 7 says, therefore he said, pick it up for yourself. So he reached out his hand and he took it. What was Elisha trying to teach this young man by having him reach down and pick up the axe head? Well, for one thing, it reminded the young man of the value of what he had lost. He had lost something that belonged to someone else. He had lost something that he could not afford to repay. But I think there's an even deeper meaning here. I think Elisha was teaching the young man a very valuable lesson about the grace of God. The young man was powerless to recover what was lost. It was by God's grace and mercy that had been given back to him. Elisha wanted the young man to take the axe head by faith and then go back to chopping down trees. 
He had recovered his cutting edge and was able to do what needed to be done. Once you you and I have accepted the responsibility for losing our spiritual edge, once we have acknowledged where we lost our spiritual edge, by faith God tells us to pick it up and to go back to work, and that means taking action. Maybe today you're saying to yourself, well, I haven't lost my cutting edge. I know right where it is. One of my first jobs ever was cutting grass. I had a secondhand push mower, had to cut our grass, the neighbor's grass, and our neighbor across the street had a riding lawnmower. One day the man came and asked if I would cut his grass on a Saturday. He was not going to be home. I said, sure. And then he said the magic words, you can use my lawnmower if you want. You know how to operate one, right? What fifth grade boy is ever going to say, no, let me just use my old mower. So I said, of course I do. I was excited. I went over Saturday morning and I got it to crank and I got it in gear. I figured out how to make it go and how to make it stop. So I began driving the mower up and down, back and forth in the grass. And about halfway through, my dad come over and said, how's it going? I said, almost through the front yard. He said, what have you done? I've been cutting. And he said, no, you've been driving. But you haven't been cutting. To cut, you have to engage the blade. So I learned to engage the blade. I think anytime we meet the gospel must be shared. So only you know whether or not you're following Christ. But today I'd like to ask you to go back with me to Mount Sinai and to stand before God and hear him ask, what are you doing here? Because today can be your day of salvation. Because on another mountain, Christ died for us. That same grace that God offered to that young man in recovering his axe head is available for you today. He'll forgive your sins. He'll give you a purpose for living. If you're already a Christian, I need to ask you today, are you chopping or cutting? Proverbs tells us that a dull axe requires much strength. Be wise and sharpen your axe. As Christians, as Alabama Baptists, we have been tasked in reaching 5,000 homes within two and a quarter miles of our church. To do this, we need about 350 people to be on three-person teams to knock on a door, participate in a survey, or to hang an information bag if no one is home. We've invited other churches in Shelby County to help us. As of Friday afternoon, the people that have signed up, there were 22 from First Baptist Pelham. Seven of those were our pastor staff. There were 21 from other churches. Most of those were staff from those churches. Crossover Birmingham is a part of the Southern Baptist Convention. The citywide goal is to reach 20,000 homes in one day with the gospel message or with gospel material. We're the largest hub in our area. So I'm not asking you to grab an axe and help me to build a larger building, but I am asking you to grab your sword and go with me from door to door and reach our neighborhood. The dessert is the application. It's where you take God's word and apply it to your life. It's an outward change from a decision that you made inside that makes up your spiritual cutting edge. I've asked God today through both services to provide 300 people who will reach out, picks up that axe head, and go visit with us on that Saturday. In your bulletin, there was a card. The card says, Crossover Birmingham. On that card, there's a place... For you to sign your name 
and give us your email address. Underneath there, there are two training events. One is Wednesday at Brook Hills, starts at 6.30. Training, the video, the actual training starts at 7. Or you can be here on the 8th at 8.30, do the training, and then go door to door. So let me know which training you're going to, and then let me know if you're available to visit. If you're going to visit, if you'll just write a yes, that means I know you're coming. If you can't go Saturday, would you go ahead of some prayer walk the neighborhoods? I don't care if you prayer drive the neighborhoods, but pray for a harvest. If you'll check that and say yes, I'll send you some neighborhoods where we need to attack with prayer walking or prayer driving. On the back, if you can't do any of those others, but you will pray on that day, you will set aside time and you will pray. Just put on the back, I will pray. And then we still need 30 ushers or greeters to help with the Southern Baptist Convention. So if you will, on the back, if you can do that, just put, I'll be an usher greeter and I'll contact you and give you everything else you need to know. I hope you don't think that the dessert sounds like a commercial because it's not intended to be that. It's a spiritual opportunity. It's an opportunity to ask, answer the question, what are you doing here? With the answer, picking up my cutting edge and going back to work. Will you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to hear and to preach your word. Father, I do pray that today that for those who have lost that spiritual edge, they're going through the motions, but they're not really attacking anything, that today, through the power of their Holy Spirit, they will have the courage to say, count me in. Father, for those that are here today, and all of this may sound strange, they're not even a follower of you. Father, I pray that today will be their day of salvation. Give them the courage to come down to the front and grab a minister by the hand and say, I am ready today to give my life to Jesus. Father, thank you. Move in this room. In Jesus' name we pray.